this is Nita Erlene, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. The vision of TRC Ministries is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the church using the resources of the kingdom of God. In our last session of What is Faith? We learned that faith in Christ is putting our confidence in the person of Christ and what he says. The result of this will be to obey him. If we find, however, that obedience has become a burden, it's a good time to evaluate what we are truly believing. Today, Tori will continue his teaching on faith, what God's role is, and what our responsibility is in aligning ourselves with the truth he gives us. Here's Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, teaching at Caravan Fellowship in this third and final part of What is Faith series. So we've been talking about faith, and we've been talking about the road of faith. My analogy here is a road of faith. It represents action, faith, faithful action, action that comes from faith. And the road is lined with ditches on either side. And there's the one ditch on one side, which is the ditch of performance, and there's the one ditch on the other side, which is the ditch of apathy. In both cases, the word itself doesn't really adequately describe all of the dangers of the ditch, but you get the you get the general idea of those ditches. We were in Hebrews chapter eleven, and we we looked at some of the different actions of faith that the writer of Hebrews points out there, and we see that that faith is not a passive thing; it's active. And I said that faith is aligning your will to act appropriately based on the truth. And uh, we talked a little bit about saving faith and how faith does not exclude works. It excludes boasting. The dictionary definition of faith, complete trust and confidence or, or confidence in someone or something. But I pointed out that biblical faith almost always involves trust in someone and something. And the example of that in Hebrews chapter 11, I think it's verse 2, by faith we've come to believe that the world exists through the word of God. And we came to believe that because the account that Moses gave explained how that happened, and we took that as credible, and we're going to talk about that more today. But then we not only had to believe the account, which was faith in Moses in that case and the account that he gave, but also believe the facts that he laid out as truth claims. And so the creation is the something that we believe and the Bible, ultimately God, is the one whom we trust. And so we end up all, almost always believing both the messenger and the message. Um, in biblical faith. So then we talked about trusting Jesus. You might This was last week. You might remember that. If complete trust or confidence in someone or something is the definition of faith, then you can't say that you have complete trust and confidence in somebody if you think that their advice is bad advice. That's the opposite of having complete confidence in them. And so if we say that we trust Jesus the natural reaction would be to do the things that he said were good things to do. 
And that's what he said, right? He said, anybody who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like the wise man who built the house on the rock. And those who hear these words of mine and don't act appropriately are like the man, the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And then we know, of course, in this, in this story, the rains came and the floods came and one house was standing when it was all said and done and the other house wasn't. The ones who acted on the word of Jesus. That is an act of faith. But we also talked about, well, how do you say, okay, well, I think I'll just do that. How do you go from there and not end up in the ditch of performance? It's easy to end up in the ditch of performance. So we talked about the difference between trying and training. And I want to read this last part to you that I read last time. You might remember from Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus saying, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. And isn't that something that we can easily experience reading the teachings of Jesus or Paul for that matter? By the way, um, just there's a, there's a, a, a doctrine out there that's taught that has the idea that this dispensational idea that the teachings of Jesus were pre, were before the atonement, so they don't apply to us. They were under the law. And I, I completely reject that premise, but that's okay. You can just take the teachings of Jesus and find every single one of them in the teachings of Paul. So we'll just take Paul and say, okay, the idea of turning the other cheek, it's there. The idea of not lusting, it's there. The idea of, wow, making friends with those who are taking you to court, it's there. I mean, you can go through each one of these and find those even in the teaching of Paul and James and John and Peter. So when you see these teachings, it's really easy to end up in the ditch of performance. And so we know we're in the ditch of performance when the burden is heavy. When the yoke chafes and the burden is not light. You remember John said, we know that we have come to love him when we what? When we keep his commandments and they are not burdensome. And so how do we find that easy yoke? How do we keep out of the ditch? I mean, it's really tough pulling an ox cart in the ditch. <laughs> So Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. I'm one of the few people that Jesus says, you big dummy, because he knows that's a term of endearment to me. But Jesus never says that to people that are crushed by that. You know, he didn't, he, he didn't snuff out that little bit of burning wick. And he didn't cut down that bruised reed. He bandages it up. Those that are in need of gentleness can count on his gentleness. For I am gentle and humble of heart. But he said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And it's amazing to me as I started thinking about this idea of learning how many times in the New Testament, that is what the teaching is about. 
that we, we actually are to learn how to become the type of person for whom these things are not burdensome, as opposed to just trying to do it. So what I said is that um, Jesus does not intend for us to try to do these things. He intends for us to cr climb into the yoke with him and learn from him how to become the type of person for whom these things will be natural. These things being the teachings of Jesus. For whom it would be natural to turn the other cheek or to bless the person who curses you. I probably told the story here for everybody, but I'm not sure Mike and Susie heard the story, so I'm going to tell it again. This was shortly after we were just getting started with the Regeneration Center, and we were kind of in the newspaper a fair amount. And I was on 6th Avenue here, turning onto Broadway, and I cut the corner a little bit. I mean, I was completely in the wrong. But I didn't, see, I didn't see the car that was just transitioning into the left-hand turn lane coming from the south. So there were cars waiting at the light. I was coming west and turning south. And I was kind of getting into that left-hand turn lane a little bit just as somebody was pulling into it. A young man, probably, I don't know, 18 or so. And so he gives me the bird. He flips me off. And... I had my car in park and my door open and my foot on the ground before I even knew what was happening. Well, what was I doing? That's what I asked myself, too. What are you going to do? You know, and I could just see the headlines. President of the Regeneration Center arrested for assault on Broadway <laughs> in road rage incident. So I waved at him and blessed him and got back in the car and drove on. <laughs> So, Jesus wants to help us become the type of person for whom blessing that person who flips you off instead of wanting to fight them is a natural thing. It takes a change in our heart for that to happen. The appropriate response of faith in Jesus is to value what he teaches and to act on it, but how we act is what will make the difference. If we attempt to simply do these things, that's somewhat like deciding to simply run a marathon. If we attempt to simply do them, that's like just saying, hey, I think I'll go out and run 26 miles. Seems like a good thing to do. But if we attempt, on the other hand, to train for them, to become the type of person who can do them, who can run 26 miles, that it's, like, it's like training for a marathon and becoming the type of person for whom 26 miles is not impossible thing. And there's a difference. And so we talked about that last week some. And I said last week, in order to keep from turning obedience to Jesus into a performance mentality, you must come to believe this is the best option for your life. This is the best way to live. And you remember I gave the example of needing to get some fuel in order to make it to Fergus Falls. And you could make a lot out of that. Thou shalt not head to Fergus Falls with less than an eighth of a tank of fuel. You know, that would be silly. And anybody that understands 
how these things work would go, oh, I need to get some fuel. And they don't, and it becomes the natural thing to do. And what that's the mentality we need to adopt. We need to see that what Jesus was teaching is really the best option. Why would anybody want to live any other way? When you come to that position, it's no longer a law. It's no longer legalism. But the question is, how do you come to believe that? How do you come to see that that's the best way to live? So if the answer of how to keep from getting in the ditch of performance when you decide you want to follow the teachings of Jesus is to come to see or come to believe that that's really the best option for your life, how do you come to believe something like that? That's the question I want to address today. So there's been a lot of really bad teaching on this subject, by the way, amongst various groups. You know, it's hard to categorize things into buckets too much and to, to generalize it, but I want to generalize anyway today. And there's basically two buckets that I see. Um, on the one hand, you have some people who say, you can't do anything about what you believe. Faith is a gift. It's a gift from God. Either you believe or you don't. It has nothing to do with the will of man. It's only God. Boom. He gives you faith. You believe. There's nothing you can do about it. So that's the one side. I think that's bad teaching. If that were true, by the way, where do you end up if that's the case? You end up in the ditch of apathy. Nothing I can do about it. God's either going to give me faith or not. It's up to him. Do that. There's a certain aspect in which there's some truth to that. It's not entirely false, but it's not a biblical teaching. It's not a helpful teaching. So if, this were, if that teaching were true, you would not have, for example, the writer of Hebrews saying, take care, brethren, that there would not be any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. How do you take care if it has nothing to do with you? How do you follow these admonitions? Or Jesus, when he's telling his disciples, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name. How do you see to it you're not misled? If it has nothing to do with anything, you can say, do, act, or whatever. If you go through the Bible and you see all the times that the Bible says, don't be the person, don't be that person, you know. Those, they were in the middle of the desert and they didn't believe, and they fell away. Don't be like them. There wouldn't be a need to teach, to be careful about how you believe. In fact, that's a phrase that Jesus said, be careful how you believe. For to him who is given much, much will be expected. He, he talked about that. So the clear teaching of the Bible is that we have a role in this. Now there's the other side of the coin, that people say that believing is simply a matter of our will. Now, that is basically two camps as I see it. There are those, and typically you'll find these in the uh, very intelligent, very academic people, you know, the apologists and so forth, that basically there, there's nothing mystical. This is just facts, and you either choose to believe it or you choose to reject it. That's your only options. It's presented to you as a reasonable thing, and you choose to accept it, or you choose to accept it, it's entirely an act of the will. It's basically an intellectual choice. You'd be stupid not to believe it. That's kind of the approach that's taken. And this seems valid. It seems reasonable, right? I mean, and I'd say 
as a group, we're probably closer to that side than the other side. And then you meet someone who wants you to accept something that simply doesn't seem reasonable to you. And then you think, well, I kind of want to accept that too. In fact, what do you do with things that are too good to be true? That's what a friend of mine, an acquaintance really more than anything, was a Hindu. And he's like, I don't see how you can believe that, you know, people can do really bad things and then just God's okay forgiving them for that. Um, just doesn't make sense to me. It's too good to be true. Well, there's a lot of things in the Bible that are things that are not just intellectually, in fact, they, they kind of intellectually seem difficult to believe. <laughs> I remember, you know, like Jesus turning water into wine. And uh, Dallas Willard said he has a, a friend at the university where he teaches that says, do you realize how much heat the transformation from water to wine would produce for it to happen instantly? It would melt the pots. It's just not reasonable. And Dallas said, well, I think if Jesus knew how to do that, he would probably know how to make the pots so they don't melt as well. It's okay. But there are things that from a purely intellectual perspective seem unreasonable. And isn't that what Paul said, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2? Well, we'll start at verse 12. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that, might, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. There's an aspect, there's another aspect or another piece to the puzzle or another calculation in the equation. It's not simply just reasonable. It's not unreasonable, but it's, it's reasonable when you're given the extra piece of the equation that's missing. And without that piece, the spiritual reality, the intellectual assumptions bar somebody from intellectually accepting it. And there has to be something that comes in that overcomes those intellectual assumptions. There's a phrase for that. We say, well, I just can't really bring myself to believe that. Or he just couldn't bring himself to believe that. And we find that there's more to it than just our will. If there's something we want to believe, but it just doesn't seem right, how do you get over that? I also want to point out, by the way, we think biblically that you know unbelief is talked about a lot, and in, it's in the context of sin. And we think of unbelief as the sin. But if you look at, for example, Romans chapter 1, um, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, what? Not reject the truth, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what is it that is the knock against them? What is it that God is angry about? They knew the truth. They were convinced it was true. He made it clear to them. He convinced them. And yet they refused to do what? To act accordingly. It wasn't that they wouldn't believe that truth. It was that they refused to conform their hearts to the truth. 
And that's what God is talking about. So it isn't a matter of them refusing to believe it, even though they didn't want it to be true, they knew it was true. So the will comes in after that convincing. Whose role is it to convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment? The Holy Spirit. And here's the teaching of, that Paul had there in Romans 1. He said, God made it evident to them. God made it evident to them. It doesn't say they refuse to believe, but they refuse to act appropriately. So there's a sense in which we can think in terms of, oh, I'm, I, we just have to choose to believe, and then we believe. And, and it seems true, but, but it, in reality, when you try it, it doesn't work. And we find out biblically, it's the next step that God's upset about, not that first step. But how do you get to that first step? I want to talk about that in just a second. So we had, on the one hand, we had people that say, there's nothing you can do to believe. Either you believe or not, it's a gift of God. And, and we end up often squarely in the ditch of apathy. Then there's the others that say, it's entirely your will. You choose to believe it or you choose to reject it. That's it. And in that second, in that second category of choosing to believe it, being entirely a matter of will, there's another teaching that primarily focuses on words. Okay? This teaching basically says that you choose to believe something by choosing to speak it, whether you think it's true or not. If you want to believe something, just say it. Now, a man told me he was, he was in seminary, and he was struggling with some of the teachings of the church, that denomination. This was the standard seminary for the denomination, and he went to one of his his advisors, and he said, I'm really struggling with this teaching. I'm having a hard time believing it. What should I do? And his advisor said, preach it. Preach it. Preach it like you believe it. You know, and we have a phrase for that, fake it till you make it. Just pretend you believe it, and the longer you preach it, the more you, know, the more you teach it, the more you'll come to believe it. You'll convince yourself. And, and there's another vein of that, and that is this positive confession idea. If you say it, it becomes true. Whatever you say. I was at a church visiting a church. I was in North Dakota, and it was uh, middle of the winter time, and they were predicting a blizzard. And I was supposed to be heading back to um, uh, Mandan, where I lived, and I was in Dickinson. I think before the service or at some point, in there, we're visiting with people, and somebody says, "Are you from around here?" I said, "No, I'm. You know, I'm. I live in Mandan." And uh, I said, "Well, I'm planning to go back there tonight if the weather doesn't get too bad." <gasps> oh, don't say that! I'm like, don't say what? I'm planning to go back. No, the business about the weather being bad. Just confess that you're going to make it back, and you'll make it back if you confess that the weather might get too bad, then that will happen. Whatever you say is what you get. What you say is what you get. People refer to that sometimes as name it and claim it. Or I've heard other people say it, gab it and grab it. So this second form of teaching has people rebuking what they don't want to believe, refusing to say it out loud, and saying only accepting and confessing what they want to be true, whether they believe it or not. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament, for instance, 
there are times when God spoke to the false prophets. He says, why do you say peace, peace when there is no peace? Do you remember that? Jeremiah said that. Jeremiah said that a couple of times and, and Isaiah said that. But why do you say peace, peace when there is no peace? And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, when you don't actually do what I say? And God said, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And so when we are confessing what is not truly in our heart, what are we doing? We're lying. We're lying to God. We're trying to convince God and ourselves of something that isn't true. This is an abomination to God. The solution is not to say, well, I don't really believe, but I'm not going to admit that. I'm just going to pretend as if I believe until I do believe. That's a lie. The solution is to figure out what it takes to actually be on the side of reality, to believe what God is saying. The teaching of positive confession is actually people teaching people deny what is in their heart and intentionally speak things contrary to their heart in a vain attempt to convince God and themselves that they believe something they don't. So, just like the other teaching that faith is entirely a matter of will, there's a few verses that seem to support this, but the overwhelming evidence of the scripture contradicts that teaching. You don't decide to make something real by confessing it. You don't make something real that isn't real by confessing it. Instead, you face the reality of your heart and deal with it before God. That's what you need to do. So, what, if anything, can we do to have faith? We got these, these are two ditches, basically. Well, I think the first principle is that God brings truth to bear upon the mind and the heart. In Romans chapter 1, he said, God made it evident to them. Jesus said, the Spirit, when he comes, he will convince the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. God brings truth to bear on the heart. We call it conviction. Oftentimes we see it in the form of people being convinced of their sin. In my case, it was being convinced that God had the right to rule, and what I was doing was rejecting his rule of my life. I had not seen it in light like that. I had not understood that reality. And God himself brings that to bear on our hearts. God makes truth evident in a way that is convincing to each person. He has a plan to reveal the truth, actually seven billion plans to reveal the truth. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So I think this is universally true. God uses every means at his disposal short of overwhelming us. Like, I mean, he has done that before, right? Nebuchadnezzar, God just said, okay, I'm taking over. Nebuchadnezzar, when he came to his senses, said, wow, God really is the God of, the, of everything. Okay, everybody should ought to praise him. Okay, but that was through being overwhelmed. God tries to avoid doing that at all costs. So short of overwhelming us, he uses every means at his disposal to bring us to the truth, to make us face the truth, to convince us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He implanted in the nature of man itself self-consciousness and God-consciousness. It's something people cannot get away from. And so what happens? We work hard not to deny these things, but to resist them, to suppress them, to not think about them. I spent a lot of time 
drinking and, and staying high so I didn't have to deal with the reality of the existence of God. That, that was a, actually a conscious decision at my part as a teenager because that kept coming back to me, the existence of God, and, and, and I just didn't want to think about it. And so I, I suppressed that truth. The demons tremble because of their belief in God and man works to suppress their belief in God. So, but this only covers being aware, being convinced. There's still a role of will and faith. The next principle, so the first principle is that God brings truth to bear upon the mind and the heart. The next principle is that we must seek to align ourselves with what we do believe. So if we started with, you know, in Romans 1, that's where it all started. We start with the existence of God and we align, we seek to align ourselves with that reality then God begins to work. And I don't have time at all to go into the process of increasing truth, but suffice it to say that Jesus taught that if someone is faithful with a little, they will also be given more. He was speaking, using money as an example of that, but he was speaking about truth, and he makes that clear in Luke. So be careful how you hear, he said. Be careful how you hear. For to him who has much, much will be expected. And his teaching here about giving people more is actually teaching about truth. God has no reason to give you more truth, to convince you of the truthfulness of more about himself if you stand against what he has already revealed to you. So the first step is to take that little bit that God has already impressed, that God has already made you convinced of, and say, I'm going to try to align my heart with that. My will is going to be aligned with that. That means, and this was my prayer. I didn't know this was the teaching of the Bible, but when I first came face to face with the reality that I was resisting the rule and reign of God, and I was destroying something that God had made, and only He had the right to destroy, I said, okay, God, I will not resist that any longer. But if there's anything else I need to do, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to do that. You're going to have to tell me. You're going to have to show me. You're going to have to help me. I was in that mode of submission, and that was the very beginning of when I aligned my will with the revelation of God that I had at the time, and I quit resisting that. The next step was God began to actually reveal more and more of himself. The writer of Hebrews says that in order to come to God, we must have faith in two truths, that God exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So how do we come to have faith that God rewards those who seek him? So the first step is the existence of God is an innate revelation that everybody in this world has. And you could, it's a, that's a matter of fact. You go throughout history. You go through every culture. It's a matter of fact. People have to work hard to resist that. But what's the next step? How do we come to have faith that God rewards those who seek Him? Well, you act on the first one. You act on that first truth. Acting on it puts the truth and us to the test. It's like any other truth. If you're not sure if it's true or not, you test it. And, and God actually said to do that. He told people, test me on this. See if it's not true. 
testing truth is the most effective way to come to believe something. If we choose to align our will with the reality of God and his creation, the natural response will be to seek him. So if you align yourself with the existence of God and say, well, gee, if this is true, then I ought to seek him. Even if you don't know that God is a rewarder of those who seek him, if you say, this is a reality, I'm going to quit resisting it, what you will find is that when you align yourself with that, God will meet them. He will reward that seeking, and often immediately. Often immediately. We have no reason to doubt. We can be assured that he will allow himself to be found. Paul said, you remember when, when he was on Mars Hill, I think it was. He said that God is not far from us and that we grope. He wants us to, to grope for him if we might actually what? Stumble upon him. That we might actually find him for he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. And what happens is the very first reaction of aligning your will with the existence of God, the creator, is groping. The blind squirrel. The only difference is the nut doesn't stay put. The nut, God, he moves closer to us, if you will. And it doesn't take much for him when he sees that heart in alignment. Boom, it's right there. And we come to see that. Truth has a way of proving itself. So while testing truth is the most effective way to come to believe something, it's not the most common way. Have you ever tested things out? I mean, think about Gideon. Did, it, did, did God rebuke him for saying, well, okay, I want to do this. I want to make sure what you're saying is true, okay? But that's not very common. The most common way is by giving credence to the teaching of someone else. Now think about all the things that you believe to be true. How much of that did you test out for yourself? Okay, when you were in first grade, and your teacher said, two plus two equals four. I don't know about you, but I didn't go get my marble bag and go one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four. Oh, look at that. Two plus two equals four. When I was really getting into math was third grade, and I just, I had a crush on my third grade teacher, and anything she said was good with me. It's like, really? Okay, I'm with you on that one. Miss Arthur, she was single. I was convinced I was going to marry her, but I fell in love with, with math that year. <laughs> no, but it's the credibility of the teacher that often is all that we need. And oftentimes we have a relationship with the person speaking. And because of the credibility of the person, we believe the message. Now, in the early church, that wasn't necessarily the case. So what did God do? He gave signs and wonders in order to provide credibility to the message. And you remember, Jesus said, at least believe me because of the things that I do. You remember him saying that? He was saying, there is every reason for me to have credibility with you. Okay? And so the most common way is for us to have confidence in the messenger and accept the message. And so we need to get to that point of confidence. And that's what I believe we need to do with the scripture. And unfortunately, we're out of time. And so I want to talk about that, I guess, next week. How do we test the scriptures? How do we come to have confidence in the Bible? I think 
that there are a lot of people who use the phrase, take it by faith. What they mean by that is, I believe the Bible because I'm supposed to believe it, not because I think it's reasonable to believe it. Matter of fact, I don't know what it says, but I venerate the book. A veneration of the book is what makes them dusty. They're too good to use. The veneration of the book is not what God is looking for. It's a belief of the message in the book. And that is not taken by unreason. That is actually, you can come to see it as reasonable to believe the messenger. Um, Lord, we need you to impress upon our hearts and minds truth. We need you, the Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth, which is the promise of Jesus. We even need your help to will according to the truth. But God, we want to do that. Help us, dear God, to align our will and to understand, to have the understanding of what it means to align our will and how we might align our will with the truth that you've already given us in order to be obedient to what you want for us and in order to reap the blessing of those who, who seek you. And I ask it because I know that's what Jesus would want in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, go to www.regenerationcenter.org.